I'm going to start a new series, and I'm going to be doing it the rest of this month now in July. And I'm going to do a series on the, it's a series on the life of Moses, and I'm calling it Lessons uh, from the Life of Moses. So as always, I'm very creative in the, in the names of my messages. But uh, I think you're going to be really encouraged. As I've been getting ready for this series, I, th- I think you're going to be encouraged. I've been encouraged studying the life of Moses. There's something about studying, just taking a month and studying a character in the Bible. It's incredibly encouraging because what we find is they were human beings just like we're human beings. And uh, they go through a lot of the same stuff that, that we go through as humans. And so there's lots of absolute gold in the life of Moses. I, had, I actually had someone when I was first uh, starting to get ready for this series, I had someone talk to me a, a few weeks ago and they were wondering if I was going to do, you know, like one message on Moses and then one message on a different character, one message on a different character. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm just going to do a whole series just on Moses. And he said, like, is there, enough, is there enough stuff there? And there is, like, way too much stuff. So, yeah, we're going to do a whole series on Moses. And uh, I really believe there are just some great things in there. Um, but uh, I think the thing I'm most excited is not even just the practical stuff we're going to learn about life from studying Moses' life. But I think you're going to encounter God, and you're going to encounter God's grace in a fresh new way during this series. And my prayer for you guys actually is, uh, if it's anything like what's happening to me as I'm, as I'm studying this, is you're actually going to, as we study the life of Moses, we're going to fall more in love with God, and that's really what it's all about. And uh, so I'm really excited about that. Now the question is, when you're going to talk about a character as big as Moses, he's sort of, he's one of those really big characters in the Bible. He really kind of stands over top of the Old Testament in particular, and in the New Testament he's referred to often. He is a very key character. And the question is, uh, where do you start? If you're going to talk about Moses, where do you start? I mean, do you start with a little baby in a basket on the Nile River? Do you start with uh, parting of the Red Sea, ten plagues in Egypt, uh, you know, water coming out of the rock? There's just uh, so many places we can go, and certainly we're going to touch on most of those big uh, uh, events in Moses' life. We're going to touch on them, some of them today. But as I was praying and getting ready for this series, I, I want to start with one passage. It's an obscure little passage. It's, uh, it's buried deep in the book of Numbers, uh, a, number, uh, uh, a book that many of us avoid, like the plague, along with Leviticus and Revelation. But uh, um, it's buried deep in the book of Numbers, and I just felt like the Holy Spirit was sort of guiding me. He's like, start with this verse, because it's going to show us something really essential about Moses' character. And I think if we don't start this series by looking at this, at, at what, who Moses was and what he was like, uh, we're not going to be able to get everything that God has for us out of this series. I believe this verse opens up a window for us into Moses' life that, that uh, will allow us to be more blessed by God as we study it. And so it's Numbers 12, verse 3, and some of you will no doubt remember this verse. I actually spoke about it in a message a few years ago when I was touching on humility. And, uh, and I love this verse. It says this, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else, on the face of the earth, okay? Now that is a, that's a, that's a, stu- that's a stunning verse. A stunning verse. Moses was a humble man, but he wasn't just a little bit humble. He was more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Imagine if you knew someone who you could say that about. Or imagine if someone could say that about you. That you are the most humble man on the face of the planet, or so-and-so is the most humble person on the face of the planet. But but that's not why this verse is one of, one of my favorites, why I really like it. Uh, I have to ask you a question to get into that. And again, like I said, some of you remember this from a few years ago, but um, who wrote this passage? Anybody know? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Moses did, right? 
I mean, that's confirmed many times in the New Testament. The New Testament, Jesus himself personally affirms that Moses wrote the books of the law like half a dozen times. It's very clear in the Bible that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what the Jews called the, call the Torah, what we call the books of the law or the Pentateuch. Moses wrote them all, and that means that Moses wrote Je- uh, Numbers 12, verse 3. Moses wrote, now Moses was a humble man, more humble than anyone else, on the face of the earth. Now you think about that. Now I asked you before to imagine if you, if, you, if you knew someone where you could say about them, they're the most humble person on the face of the planet. Now imagine you know someone who writes an autobiography and writes that about themselves. Okay? And we think, I mean, imagine the gall to, to say that. In fact, how can you even say that? Isn't it contradictory? I mean, the moment you say, I'm the most humble person on the face of the planet, doesn't that mean you're not humble, right? Like, how can he say that? And, uh, but the thing we have to remember is, um, uh, the Holy Spirit, right, inspired the words of Scripture. So when we look at this verse, we have to realize, first of all, that God wanted the verse in there, and second of all, that it's 100% accurate, okay? And so the question is, well, how can it be, like, just, we don't get it. It just bothers us, right? And I think the reason it bothers us when we think about it, I mean, for many of us, it doesn't bother us because we just never think. We just read the Bible. Oh, Moses is the most humble man. We never stop to think Moses is writing this. But when we realize that, we go, well, what in the world is that? It doesn't make any sense to us. And the reason it doesn't make any sense to us is because we don't actually understand what it means to be humble. We don't know what humility is. And uh, when we think of the word humble, we have this, we have this idea in our mind that humble kind of means like, uh, super spiritual. It means, you know, someone who's very pious and they, and they put God first in everything and, and, uh, and they, they, they pray all the time and they read their Bible all the time. These are not people, these are not normal people, okay? Uh, a person who's very, very humble is not a normal person. This is not the type of person who would, you know, go to a football game or paint a W on their cheek and cheer when the bomber score a touchdown. That's not a humble person, okay? We, when we think of a humble person, we think of a pious religious person. We don't think of someone who would laugh or tell jokes, We think of someone who would never buy themselves a new set of clothes because they give all their clothes to the poor. When we think humble, we think of someone who's very spiritual, thinks very lowly of themselves. And because we think that that's what humility means, when we look at this, we think Moses is bragging. Because if I say, I'm the most humble person on the face of the planet, we think, well, you're bragging about how spiritual you are. You're bragging about your character. You're bragging about how humble you are. But what if humility doesn't mean that? What if humility and being humble has nothing to do with being super spiritual or pious or thinking super lowly of yourself? And so uh, I did, as I've been getting ready for this series, I did a a word study on what the word humble means. And uh, so I looked it up in the concordance. I'm going to put it up there for you now. The word that is translated humble there is the Hebrew word anav. And this is what it means. And I just copied and pasted this. I just took this out of the concordance. And I've put it up there on the screen. And this is what the concordance says about the word anav, which is translated in some of the translations as humble. Uh, Anav means poor, afflicted, needy, or meek. Okay? Or it can just mean poor and needy. Or it can just mean poor and weak. Or it can mean poor, weak, and afflicted. I mean, they really repeat themselves in these concordances, but I guess they, they want to get a certain number of pages in or something. And then, or it can mean just humble, lowly, and meek. Okay? But the point is here, it means poor, needy, afflicted, weak, meek. That's what it means. All right? 
So now if I take what it means and I put it back into that verse, I want to show you how it reads, okay? So now it reads, Now Moses was a very poor, needy, afflicted, meek man, more than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now I want you to notice, as soon as you look at what this actually means here, he's not bragging anymore, is he? If I say I'm the most humble person on the face of the planet, it might sound a little bit at first like I'm bragging about how spiritual I am. But if I say I'm the most poor, needy, afflicted, meek man on the face of the planet, I'm not telling you anymore how great I am. I'm telling you how far short I fall and how much I need God. Isn't that true? There's a huge difference there. See, when Moses says that he was the most humble man on the face of the planet, he's, he was not thinking in his head, I've got to tell these people how spiritual, how amazing my character is. That's not what he's saying. He's literally saying, I am the most poor, needy, afflicted, and meek man on the face of the planet. I need God more than anyone. And he's saying how far short he falls and how much he needs God. And I think the reason the Holy Spirit, and and who knows all of his reasons, right? But I think one of the main reasons why the Holy Spirit had Moses write this verse is because the Holy Spirit knows that we as human beings are given over to hero worship. The Holy Spirit knows that, that for thousands of years after Moses would live, we would be reading the scriptures and reading the stuff about what God did, and we would read the stories of, with that how involved Moses and crossing the Red Sea and getting the Ten Commandments and, and water coming out of a rock, and the Holy Spirit knows that as human beings we are given to hero worship, we would read those stories, and we would think, wow, Moses, what an amazing prophet of God. What a powerful man of the Spirit. That's what we're given over to. And instead of giving glory to God, instead of saying, Wow, what an amazing God. We go, wow, what an amazing super spiritual man who did these great things for God. And so the Holy Spirit said to Moses, he said, I want you to write it down so that it's written in stone for thousands of years who you really are. See, the story of Moses, and this is why I had to start with this passage before we go anywhere else in this series, and you can't get everything that God has for you in this series until you get this point. The story of Moses is not the story of a great man of God who did awesome things for God. That's not the story of Moses. The story of Moses is the story of a poor, needy, afflicted, ordinary, frail human being in the hands of an almighty God. He was an ordinary human being. But he gave himself over to an all-powerful God and God's power worked through him. But it was all God, not Moses. And Paul would agree with me in my interpretation of this. He said in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being, not even one, not Moses, not Elijah, not David, there's never been a superhero that God's used in the Bible. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God does not choose superheroes to do his work. God does not look for some powerful man of the spirit, some powerful prophet to do his work. God looks for ordinary, frail human beings, and then he pours his power through them and does some things. But it's God who does them. And the reason this is so, the reason I'm stressing this and the reason I'm starting with this is because subconsciously this is what we do when we, when we, when we go through the story of Moses and the other Bible characters too. We go through these stories and subconsciously there's a block that keeps us from feeling conviction when we read the stories. 
there's a subconscious block that keeps us from feeling conviction. And the, re- the thing that keeps us from feeling conviction is we read, oh, Moses talked to God, but it doesn't cut us to the heart that maybe God would want to speak to us too. No, no. We read that and it doesn't even connect with us that that could happen to us because we think, well, of course it happened to Moses. He was this, you know, this super spiritual guy. He was this, you know, this amazing you know, prophet. Of course God spoke to him. And it doesn't cut us to the heart that maybe God wants to speak to us too. And we read, God called Moses. And he said, I want you to, I'm going to use you to rescue many people out of bondage. And we read that and we go, yeah, of course it happened to Moses. I mean, yeah, God, you know, mighty prophet and God partnered with him and did this stuff. And it doesn't cut us to the heart that maybe God wants to call each one of us and rescue many people from bondage through us. And it doesn't cut us to the heart because there's a gap we feel between Moses and us. Moses was a superhero. But the moment you realize that he was the most poor, needy, afflicted man on the face of the planet, that he was as ordinary and frail and average as you and me, suddenly this story becomes very personal and very dangerous. Because suddenly there is application and you begin to see God's heart for you and for people and what he wants to do through ordinary, frail people. And the story comes alive and there's conviction. So if you're here today and you feel average, you feel unspiritual, you feel unworthy, you just feel, I mean, I know that we've got people here today, and you, you, I mean, you look at me up on stage and you're like, okay, well, yeah, he's a pastor, and you, know, you look at someone like Grace Fast, I mean, she prays in a, in a prayer room all the time, and you know, Pastor Ray, all these people, and you think, oh yeah, well, of course those people, I mean, they, they just spend tons of time with God, so they're super spiritual, they know all this stuff about the Bible, of course God's going to use them, but you just feel, not me. I'm just a normal human being. If you feel like just a normal, average, frail human being who can't be used by God, you are exactly in the Moses mold. When God came to Moses and finally started to use him, he was 80 years old. I mean, 80 years old. I'm not trying to insult anyone here today, but that's like past the expiry due date, okay? That's over the hill, long down coasting. No offense to Mr. McAllister if he's here again this morning. But, uh, but I mean, that's just not, and he's a shepherd. He's all these sorts of things. I mean, he's unusable. And God says, uh, no, no, no. I pick the poor, the needy, the afflicted, the average, the frail, because then no human beings can boast and God gets all the glory. And so what I want to do in the next two weeks now is, uh, I mean, the series is going to go four weeks, but the next two weeks, this week and next week, these two messages go together, is I want to show you uh, the uh, one overarching principle over Moses' life. Uh, particularly the last 40 years of his life. But there's one overarching principle over his life that uh, sets him apart from many of the other characters of the Bible, and, but sets him apart uh, in a sense of how he went from being ordinary and not being used by God to being ordinary and frail and used by God. And it has huge application for each one of us here. It is a biblical principle that, that is for all of us. And uh, now when I say one overarching principle, I don't want to oversimplify. It's not like Moses said one thing or did one thing and then suddenly he just changed it from not being used to used. Uh, life isn't that simple. Uh, there's a process. And so in order to show you this one overarching principle that we're going to get to next week, I want to take you through four stages. God took Moses through four stages, distinct stages, in, in molding him into a person. He never made Moses superhuman, but molding Moses from an ordinary, frail person who couldn't be used to an ordinary, frail person who could be used. That's what we're going to look at this week and next. We're going to pray. Let's pray again right now and ask God to bless our time together and really convict us and change our lives. And then we'll go on with this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, again, my prayer is today, Father, 
that as we go through this series on Moses, we're actually going to fall more in love with you. We're going we're to come closer to you. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would just, uh, just anoint our time together and open our hearts to receive here, that the Word would come alive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Four stages of life uh, that, that God took Moses through, uh, leading up to where Moses was able to be used by God, even though he was poor, needy, afflicted, and meek, the, the most poor, needy person on the face of the planet. And the first stage that Moses went through, okay, the first stage, and because you got to know, to get where we're going, you have to know where Moses came from. Because it's in the knowing, it's in the journey that we see many parallels with our own lives. We're going to see many, many parallels. Um, but the first stage, before Moses could be used by God, his first stage was the wants to save the world stage. Okay? Um, and Moses went through this stage. When we just looked at Numbers 12, verse 3, that Moses is the most poor, needy, afflicted person face the planet. Uh, when that verse was said, Moses was already into stage 4, which we'll get into next week. Okay? And uh, he was already well into stage 4. He was well on his way to being a person who can be mightily used by God. And he was already being mightily used by God. But long before he ever got to that stage, he went through a stage where Numbers 12, verse 3, would not have been true of him. And in his 20s and 30s, up until he was 40 years old, Moses was an extremely self-confident person. He believed in God. He believed in God's promises. And he thought he was... He was the guy that God was going to partner with to deliver the people of Israel from bondage. I want to read you this famous story. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Okay? So here we see Moses taking matters into his own hands. Now, he sees an injustice happening. Was it injustice? Certainly it was. He knows the promises of God. He knows that the, that the Jewish people are supposed to come out of bondage. So he knows God's ultimate will. He sees an injustice happening. And he thinks, I'm going to fix this. And so he takes matters into his own hand. And he tries to fix things in his own time by his own strength. But he thinks, I'm going to be the one to fix this. Now some of you might be sitting there and you're looking at, up and down and you're going, Wow, Chris, you're getting a lot about his motivations there from this passage. I don't see anything there. Okay? So let me take you to another passage. I'm glad you thought that. Very good. I'm glad you're questioning me on that. Let's look at... We, there's another place we've got to go to here, okay? Acts chapter 7. A lot of people, when they think life of Moses, um, th- that's Exodus. Actually, one of the best chapters in the Bible. If you're, if you're going to read this week up on the life of Moses, I would recommend you do that. It's great. But uh, one of the best chapters in the Bible with all kinds of information about Moses is Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 gives us a whole bunch of information about Moses that isn't in the Exodus story. And uh, Acts, Acts chapter 7 is a story of Stephen, the first uh, Christian martyr. It's the story of Stephen uh, getting stoned. And by that I mean rocks were getting thrown on him, not the other kind of stone, okay? But uh, he's about to get rocks thrown on him and killed. And, uh, and before he does, he, goes, he gets to go on this monologue, right? Like we see in the movie, sometimes you read a book, someone just before they die, you know, they give this long monologue. And it happened in real life here. So Stephen gives this message, and he preaches a whole bunch about Moses. And he gives us all kinds of amazing Holy Spirit-inspired nuggets about the life of Moses that you can't get in the book of Exodus. Okay? And so I want to show you, because I just said that Moses was very self-confident, that he felt like he was the answer to the children of Israel's problems, and then that's why he struck down the Egyptians. So let me show you uh, where I get that from. Acts chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. 
When he, that's Moses, so this is Stephen speaking, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand, look at this, that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Okay? But they did not understand. We'll get to that in just a minute. They were kind of dense. They didn't get it. But he thought, it's obvious I'm the one, that I'm the one. He said, they're going to see that I'm the answer to their prayers. God's going to deliver them from bondage, but it's going to be by my hand, by his hand. Very interesting. Moses thinks he's a deliverer. This is when he's 40 years old. Now, interesting thing about this, most of us, if we think, if, if someone was to ask you the question, when was Moses called into ministry to deliver the people of Israel from bondage? And most of us would say when he was 80 years old at the burning bush. And we're going to look at the burning bush uh, next week more in detail. But uh, we would say when he was 80 years old at the burning bush. And it's true, that was a major calling point in Moses' life. But we find here that 40 years earlier already, Moses already had that calling on his life at a young age. Moses was already called. He already knew, thought he was going to be the deliverer of Israel. But in this case, what we see is that he thinks he's going to be the deliverer of Israel but because of how amazing he is. Okay? And if you think about it, I want us to just put ourselves in Moses' shoes here for a bit. And I want you to see everything that he has going for him. Because you're going to see, this wasn't just Moses being an idiot. He had reasons for thinking what he thought. He had reasons for striking down that Egyptian. And I wonder if many of us wouldn't have done the same thing. But I want you to think about Moses' point of view, okay? The first thing he has going for him is that he has got a miracle story in his background, okay? He's got a miracle story in his background. He is a Hebrew slave, or that's what he should be. He's a Hebrew. He was born into a slave family, and uh, he should have been killed. I mean, the Egyptians had a law, had a decree that all the Hebrew babies would be killed. But instead of being killed, Moses' mom, uh, you know, so she has Moses for three months. She kind of hides him. Then he gets too big and too loud. She can't hide him anymore. And so she does, you know, kind of whatever any concerned mother would do. She puts him in a basket and floats him on the river. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he floats down the river. And, you know, not just some random person picks him up. I mean, uh, the vast majority of Egypt's population today and in those days as well, the vast majority, you're talking 80, 90% of their population, lives right along the Nile. Moses puts this baby, this little, her, you know, Moses' mom puts him in, in the Nile River along which, you know, the entire Egyptian country lives and he happens to get picked up by an Egyptian princess and she just happens to take him home and raise him. So, I mean, I, I want you just to think about this for a moment. So, he's got a miracle story. He's a Hebrew now living as Pharaoh's grandson. I mean, obviously he's got to be the deliverer, right? I mean, what, why else would God put you there, right? Now, I'm going to put it on pause. There's a whole bunch of other things he has going for him. I got to give you some, I got to give you a, you don't mind if I give you a little history, right? This is going to bring the story alive. It's awesome. And whether you mind or not really doesn't matter to me. But um, I, this, this is just so cool. I was reading some uh, Christian uh, uh, writers, historians, and uh, archaeologists this past week. And really brought this story of Moses in a basket to life. Because it's always bothered me. And I don't know if it's ever bothered some of you. But I know sometimes we just tend to, we just flip through the scripture so quick. We're just reading it because we've heard these stories so many times before that we don't pick up on things. But one of the things that's often bothered me is, like, why would this Egyptian princess, okay? Um, So she's down at the Nile River, and she sees, and the scriptures are clear, she immediately recognizes that the baby is a Hebrew baby. Why would this Egyptian princess, the Egyptians despise the Hebrews, and there's a law that her own father made that all the baby boys are to be killed. So why is it that her first instinct is pick it up, take it home, and raise it? Does that not bother you? Like, that's a lot of work. 
Like, uh, I mean, maybe some of us, you know, we're Christians. We believe in Jesus. You've got to love you. I mean, you find a baby in the river. Okay, maybe we take it home and, and love it and stuff. But, uh, but an Egyptian princess, why would she do that, right? Just take them all. And the Bible, I love how the Bible writes these stories. I mean, just a few words. And there's so many details not there. You're like, please tell me more, right? Um, but some interesting stuff that Christian archaeologists believe about this was very interesting. And uh, to give you a little historical background, I think bring, really brings it alive as to why she did what she did. Uh, the, this is what a lot of Bible historians and stuff believe, is that the Pharaoh who was Pharaoh when the, when the, at this time, when Moses was born, was a Pharaoh by the name of, uh, I'm just going to read it here because I, I always have a hard time remembering it, but Amenemhet, okay, Amenemhet III, okay? Amenemhet III was Pharaoh over Egypt uh, right around 1500 BC, which is right around the time when Moses would have been born, which was uh, 1498 BC, you know, maybe give or take a couple of years. But uh, so Amenemhet III is the pharaoh from history that seems to match up with uh, the events in the Bible, okay? And uh, interesting thing about Amenemhet III, which confirms some of the bi- stuff in the Bible, is that Amenemhet III, it's very unique time period. Amenemhet III and just a couple of pharaohs right around his time, uh, they did most of their building with mud bricks mixed with straw, which is very interesting because most of the Egyptian pharaohs did not use mud bricks mixed with straw. But Amenemhet III, which is right around 1500 BC, which is right around when Moses would have been born according to the Bible, he built, uh, did most of his buildings with mud bricks mixed with straw, which is exactly what we find right in Exodus 5 verse 7. The pharaoh in the Bible tells them that they need to mix their straw with mud themselves to make the bricks, okay? So that, that matches up. What matches up even more and gets really even cooler is this. Amenemhet III also had a daughter named Sobek Neferu, and I'm going to put her picture up here, okay? Someone snapped the photo, and uh, there she is. That is uh, Amenemhet III's daughter, and uh, history tells us, okay, that Sobek Neferu was infertile and was never able to have children of her own, okay? And now this is where this gets very interesting, okay? Now, there's a distinct possibility that the woman you're looking at there, that this is the woman who took Moses out of the Nile River, okay? Uh, again, there's just a possibility. We can't be 100% sure, but it seems to match up with timelines. History in the Bible comes together uh, very closely here. Very fascinating. Um, because another interesting thing in the Bible story is that this Egyptian princess is down by the Nile River. Now, this doesn't actually make a lot of sense because Egyptian princesses would not have, uh, would not have been bathing in the Nile River. That was for the common people. They had their own baths and stuff in their palaces, okay? So it doesn't make sense. Why is this? We just think, oh, yeah, she was bathing in the Nile River. No, that's where everybody bathed, okay? She is Pharaoh's daughter, and she does not need to go to the Nile River to bathe. Um, but what's interesting is, in Egyptian religion, in, and the Egyptians had a whole bunch of different gods in their religion, but one of their main gods, for obvious reasons, is the Nile River god Hapi, H-A-P-I. And, the, so the, and he was the god of the, you know, over the Nile River, and he also was the god, if you were having fertility problems, he was the fertility god, like whether it would be with your cattle or whether, you know, with human beings. If you needed to have babies or your cattle to have babies, you would go to the Nile River and you would pray to the Nile god Hapi, okay? Now think about the possibilities here. If Sobek Neferu is the one who pulled Moses out of the water, a lot of things fall into place. Um, because what is very possible, what happened is she was going down to the Nile River and she was at the Nile River praying to Hopi for a baby. And while she's praying, the real God, Yahweh, is sovereignly moving events. And he sovereignly has Moses' mom just gets this idea, I'm going to put him in a basket and put him in the river. Like, 
Oh, brilliant idea. I mean, that's something that's been done throughout the ages, right? So you just put him in a basket. He just has her put her in a, ba- put him in a basket, and he floats down. And right while Sobek Neferu is praying to Hoppy for a baby boy, a basket floats out of the reeds. And lo and behold, there's a baby boy in there. She recognizes he's a Hebrew boy, but she's just been praying for a baby. This is clearly a miracle, right? And so you see Yahweh, the true God, you know, even using false religions and all kinds of things. But he sovereignly uses whatever he, whatever he wants in his plan to bring things together. What's really amazing then too, right, as the Bible story goes, Miriam is, is watching Moses from the banks. And she comes over and talks to, and possibly, who is Sobek Neferu. Uh, we can't be sure again, but possibly. And Sobek Neferu actually ends up hiring Moses' mother to come into the palace and help raise him. And so in that way, God just brings us this plan together perfectly because now Moses is being raised as Pharaoh's grandson, but he's not getting taught all of the pagan stuff of the Egyptians. His mother is teaching him all of the Hebrew stuff. And his mother is, is teaching him the history of the Hebrews. And she's telling him about the promises made to, to Abraham in Genesis 15. You can read the promise in Genesis 15. God said to Abraham, your descendants are going to go into bondage for 400 years. And then I am going to deliver them out of that. And so, so Moses' mother is telling him these stories. And I, no doubt, I, 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 be, I bet, I believe that Moses' mother was telling Moses from a young age, you're the guy. You are the deliverer. God has promised it. He's going to do it. And they knew how many years they'd been in Egypt too. He also said to Abraham on the fourth generation. They knew. They knew the time was soon. Because God had given them that outline to Abraham. Before he went into Egypt. And so I no doubt she's saying, Look, you're a Hebrew boy being raised as the grandson of Pharaoh. It's obviously you, Moses. You're the deliverer. And so he's growing up, he's got this miracle story, he's got this, you know, this position, he's got connections and power. He also has tremendous charisma and training and speaking ability. I want to show you that. That's also in, in uh, Acts here. Acts chapter 7, verses 20 to 22 says this. Um, normally when we think of Moses, we think of him as not being a good speaker. And we'll get to that next week, because after he gets broken in the desert, I think he actually maybe has a nervous breakdown or something, because... Later on, we find that he might even have a speech impediment, but he has some problems with speaking. But before he goes into the wilderness, he's a, he's a powerful man in word and deed. Look at what Stephen says about him in Acts chapter 7. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, uh, that has nothing to do with nudity there, that's just you know, put out to the elements there in the basket, uh, just so you know if you, in case you're confused. But Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So he's got training. He's got intelligence. He's got smarts. Look at this. Instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Okay? This guy has all the tools. He has got all the tools. Of course God's going to use him. He is incredible. Miracle story. Miracle upbringing. This is the promise. Charisma. Connections. Power. Wealth. And this is why Moses, I mean, his whole life... He was brought up to believe he's the, de- he's the deliverer. And that's why he thinks then that when he strikes down the Egyptian, he thinks that my fellow Hebrews are going to think the same thing too. They're going to see it. I can see it so clearly. And I wonder how many of us have known people like this too. They have a, they've had you know, powerful prophetic gifting. They've had powerful miraculous experiences. And, and they're just itching at the bit to be used by God. And you just think, of course God's going to use them. I mean, look at how amazing and how spiritual they are. 
And you look at Moses. I mean, everything's there. If Moses had sat down with you the day before he struck down the Egyptian, and he had, and he had told you all the things going on in his life, and all you know, the words from God, and the miracles, and, the, and this, and all the stuff God's done in his life, you would go, yeah, you're the deliverer. I mean, you might not have told him to, to kill an Egyptian, but you probably would have encouraged him. And he might, have, he might have asked you, you know, should I just go ahead and start leading them out of, out of Israel? And, uh, and you, you probably would have given him that advice. And uh, we see in 7 verse 25, again, we see he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But it doesn't work out that way, does it? He's got all the talent. He's got the miracles. We've got promises of God in Scripture. I mean, this is the guy. You think, go ahead, Moses, do it. God's going to bless it. He's going to do miracles. And Moses steps out. He takes matters into his own hands, in his own time, in his own strength. He kills the Egyptian. And then what happens? Exodus 2, 13 to 15. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And here we see Moses, all this buildup, all his life, all the coincidences and the miracles and the power and the gifting. And it's all building up to he's going to deliver Israel. And then he steps out. And you would think he's stepping out in faith to do something for God. But it's not faith when you do it on your own time and your own strength and your own way. And he steps out to, to put a stop to some injustice. His heart is, is against that injustice. And God stands back and watches him fall flat on his face. And the next thing we see is he moves into stage two. He runs out into the wilderness. And he is out in that wilderness off the face of the uh, you know, off the map of, you know, the Israel and God's work and all that sort of stuff for 40 years. 40 years. Disillusionment on a massive scale. Disillusionment on a massive scale. And uh, I wonder how many people here today, let, let's just stop, because again, he was an ordinary, frail human being, and, and I think we just need to constantly bring this story into our own lives here. No doubt there's people here today and you feel like at some point in your life, God gave you a, a word from God. There was a prophetic word. Someone else even confirmed it. Some miracles even happened. And you've got gifting and visions and dreams, all sorts of stuff. And God's going to use me. And you're trying to step out and all this stuff. And then stuff, it didn't work out. You were a rising star in some ministry. You were raising money. The ministry was growing. And then things went sour. People turned on you. You're bitter now. You've been out of the ministry for a few years. You feel like God told you to start that business or, or you know, marry that person. And you're like, oh, that hasn't, hasn't worked out. Um, and you just think, well, what? And disillusionment. That's what, think of it. You, you are not experiencing disillusionment any more than what Moses felt. I mean, he looks at his life. All the signposts are there. God's going to bless this. And he doesn't get blessed. Because he did it in his strength and his time and his way. Now, I want to. Rabbit trail. It's going to seem like a rabbit trail at first, but I'm going to tie it back to this Moses thing. It just needs to get preached here. I think it's so important. I want to talk about social justice here for just a minute, okay? Social justice has become one of the, uh, you know, biggest trends. I don't want to say fad because fad has negative connotations, and I don't want to be negative about this. But social justice has become a massive trend in the Christian church right now across North America. Huge, Okay? And, uh, and may I just say this right away, social justice is not bad at all. In fact, it is good. When people get radically impacted by Jesus, they get filled by the Holy Spirit, they are going to see injustice in the world and they're going to want to tackle it, no question. 
Uh, so, I mean, and we're big on social justice here at Southland. And we, I mean, as you guys all know, every year, hundreds of thousands of dollars we're, go- we're sending over to Uganda. We're partnering with them, training pastors, helping with the big uh, BBT orphanage over there, medical clinics, schools, all that sort of stuff. We're doing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, food, farming equipment, all that sort of stuff. Things are changing out there in a huge way. And right here at home, we just turned sod a couple of weeks ago, $2 million project right over there from the church. We're going to be housing people, not to mention all the other, you know, uh, stuff we've done in this community, the Bethesda Hospital. We were one of the biggest donors there to the cancer ward and the, and the birthing center, all that sort of stuff. So I, I say all of that, love social justice, love the heart behind it. Yeah, Jesus, we've got to take things on, okay? So now I've said all that, now let me tell you what I see. This is what I see. I see the church hugely focusing on social justice, talking about social justice. You turn on create, uh, uh, you know, Christian radio, social justice, social justice, social justice. Every song on social justice. Young people throwing their money this way, that way, thousand different causes. They're at the church. Why aren't we doing this? And why aren't we doing this? And why are we doing this? And there's a thousand different causes out there. And, and, and people want to feel like they're doing something for God. And they're at the marches. And they got the bracelets. And they got the t-shirts. And so we've got social justice on the brain everywhere. And this is what I see. I mean, in the last decade, I think the church has put more energy, more time, more money into social justice than for sure at any time in this past century, maybe ever. And what I see is the church is getting weaker, the church is getting smaller, and society continues to crumble around us. So we can, I think we can safely say it's not being very effective. Okay? Much of it is not being effective. So let me tell you why. Same reason it wasn't effective for Moses. See, we think that good intentions are enough. We think, I see a social justice cause, I see an injustice in the world. Well, I'm just going to head right over there. I'm going to pour some, some energy and time and money in there. I'm going to raise some funds. I'm going to do some fundraising. I'm going to get some business people in there, get some people with talent. We're going to tackle this thing, and God's going to bless it. We're going to do it because he's a loving God, and so that's what he does. And we go and do it, and, and I know, I'm thinking of people right now, totally disillusioned because it doesn't work out. And it didn't work for Moses either. He had all the story. He had all the pedigree. He had the promises of God. He had all this sort of stuff. But he stepped out in his own way, in his own strength, in his own time. And so I see the church focusing on social justice more than ever before. And I see the church in the West praying probably less than at any time before. And that is a vast inequality, which means ineffectiveness. See, because, you know, like, let we Christians, we call ourselves something. We call ourselves followers of Jesus. Uh, do you know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? It means you follow Jesus. Yeah? True? What does it mean to follow Jesus? This is what it means to follow Jesus. He's in front. He's doing stuff. He's going places. And you're behind him. And you're doing it. That's following Jesus. You know what Moses did and why he failed? He was leading Jesus. That's what many people are doing in the social justice movement today. We think good intentions are enough. Just look around the world, find an injustice, pour some money and energy there, feel good about yourself, wear the t-shirt, wear the bracelet, we're going to do something for God. Because obviously God's going to bless it because it's an injustice. So we decide when, where, and how, and we think Jesus is going to follow us. You know what that's called? That's leading Jesus. Guess what? Jesus is a terrible follower. He's a terrible follower. He doesn't believe in following. We follow him. He does not follow us. He's God of the universe. He's God almighty. All powerful, majestic, sovereign. 
And so prayer, this is, where, this is what prayer is. I'm not one of these people that thinks prayer instead of action. A lot of times people, the moment you say prayer, people say, oh no, I'm not one of those people you know, that, that does prayer instead of action. No, no, it's not either or. Everything comes out of prayer. We don't do prayer instead of action. We do prayer before action. You go into the presence of God because he's the king. And you say, dear God, I love you. What are you doing? Where are you working? And then you look to see, not where there's just any old injustice in the world, and I'm going to run over there and hope that God follows me into it and blesses it. I'm going to look where God is working, and I'm going to follow and do what he's doing. Amen? Some of you can say amen. Some of you can't. That's my rant. Let's get back to this. So, that's what Moses tried doing. He tried leading Jesus instead of following, and it ends him up in the desert. And so we look at, in the desert of disillusionment, in the wilderness, on the scrap heap of, of, of usefulness and ministry, doing nothing, going from being the superstar. Everybody, including us, would have looked at Moses and said, he's the guy. And he goes from that to doing nothing for God. And we see him again in Acts 7, verse 30. It says this, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And I want you to notice those two little words. I've, I've hit them already a few times, but I want you to notice those two words. 40 years. 40 years. See, again, we, we just know these stories become so familiar to us that we just page through them. And so, you know, now when 40 years whew, had passed, God appeared to, to Moses at the burning bush, and we just, hmm, yeah, 40 years. And for us, it's just, I mean, it takes us a split second to read those two words. 40 years is just 40 years. And we just, in our minds, we go from one scene, Moses strikes down Egyptian, Next scene, oh, and God appears to him at the burning bush. And we miss the fact of 40 years. 40 years is a long, long time. Okay? I'm not even 40 years old yet. Okay? I'm only 34, for those of you who are curious. All right? 40 years ago is a long time. Those, some of you guys who are, who are a little older, a little balding, a little grayer, you'll remember 40 years ago, 1972, uh, that was the year Paul Henderson scored the famous goal there at the Summit Series. I went on YouTube and actually watched it this week. That was kind of cool. But 40 years ago, that's a long, long time. 40 years Moses is out there doing nothing. See, we don't, in our culture, we want everything to happen quickly. If God gives me a word about something, it's got to happen now. Two, three months. If it hasn't happened in two, three months, we've probably already forgotten it. You know, some of the real persevering ones here, maybe after a year. But if God gives me a word, he's going to use me, a promise, he's going to do something, it's going to happen right now. Let's make something happen. Right now. Or if God's got a lesson to teach me, if I haven't learned it in three weeks, you know, something's wrong here, okay? But here's the thing. God is not in a rush. He's got an eternal perspective. And this 40 years thing that Moses has in the desert, you know, one of the scariest things to me as I was getting ready for this series is it's actually a common thing for many Bible characters. It's not just Moses. This is a common theme in Scripture. Many of the Bible characters have to go through decades of waiting. Not months, not weeks. I mean, most of us, we opt out. Oh, God, you've been teaching me this already for two weeks. I'm opting out, okay? How about David, okay? Let's just run through uh, just a couple other examples. David. Samuel comes to him and anoints him. The Holy Spirit is there, and Samuel says, under the power of the Holy Spirit, you are, present tense, the king of Israel. And you go, wow, what a word from God. The anointing, the spirit was there. Powerful worship experience, powerful meeting of God. And I got this promise, and whew, let's see what God's going to do in the next six months. 20 years later, David finally becomes king. 20 years. 
most of that that 20 years is spent running for his life, living in caves. Exactly opposite. He gets a word from God. His circumstances go in the opposite direction. You ever been there? You get a word from God. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to use you to do this in this business or this in this ministry. And after you get that word, it actually goes in the opposite direction. Many of us just give up right there. How about Joseph? God gives Joseph two dreams. You're going to be a great leader. I'm going to use you. Now, of course, he goes and blabs his mouth to his brothers. He shouldn't have done that. Not a lot of tact there. But uh, God gives him two dreams. I'm going to use you. I'm going to make you a leader. What's the next thing that happens to him? He, he took a step towards leadership. No, he got sold as a slave. 13 years. He's a slave and a prisoner. 13 years. Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you a son. And whoo, one year later, you know, baby Isaac was born. No. 25 years. 25 years. And so we come to Moses. And, and we, we look at Moses. If we were kind of consulting with God, you know, after he strikes down the Egyptian, we'd say, okay, God, he's got the talent. He's got the miracles. He's got the ability, the charisma. He's clearly the guy. So, fine, okay, a little bit proud. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have got out of your timing. Send him on the desert for two, three months. You know, a year, two years max. God, two, more than two years? 40 years. See, there's something, there is something good that happens to us in the waiting. And I'm not talking about a week or a month or even a year. There is something good that happens in the human spirit that can only be developed in the course of years of waiting. There's something that happens in the long periods of waiting in the wilderness. It develops patience. It develops trust. It develops dependency on God. And it destroys self-reliance and impatience. It develops poverty of spirit, which is what we saw in Numbers 12, verse 3. After Moses got his 40 years in the desert, he goes from being mighty in word and deed to being the most poor, needy, afflicted man on the face of the planet. And it's right then, see, and this is where we human beings were so messed up. We look at who is God going to use? He puts two people in front of us. One is 80 years old and he's a shepherd. By the way, a shepherd in those days was the most despised position. You would look at someone in those days as a shepherd, and Moses was raised in, the, in Pharaoh's palace, and the Egyptians especially despised shepherds. You would look at someone who is a shepherd, he's 80 years old, he's done nothing for God for the last 40 years, and you'd say, whoop, no potential. Zippo. Will not be used by God. Maybe he can come to the prayer meetings and help us out there. That's it for him, though. You look at another guy, 40 years old, talent, miracles, power, prophetic. Woo! This guy's going to be used by God. And is God not see things exactly opposite as us? He has no use for the 40-year-old who's full of himself and all kinds of power and all the gifting. Doesn't matter. No use for you. Can't use you. The 80-year-old shepherd? Yes, that's the guy. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the talented, the powerful prophetic people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The ESV keeps getting it wrong in some of this. No. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who are poor and needy and afflicted and know that by themselves they can do nothing and everybody thinks that this person has no potential because, hey, they had a divorce in their past. They've got a struggling marriage. They, had, they went bankrupt. No, 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 that person can't be used by God. That, they're out. God, Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones who advance God's kingdom. They're the ones. So God sends Moses out into the desert for 40 years, to get him to that place of poor in spirit. 
I want to finish with this verse. After 40 years in the wilderness, Moses' pride and self-reliance were totally shattered. In fact, as we're going to see next week, uh, God actually has to kind of help him because he kind of go, almost goes too far. But, but uh, he no longer thinks he's someone special. He no longer thinks he's the answer to Israel's prayers. He didn't even think he could be used by God anymore. And it's right then that we read the following, Exodus 3, verse 2. It's right when Moses is at the place, I cannot be used by God anymore. And then this is what we read. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. That passage should give us tremendous hope. God never forgets Moses, does he? Forty years out in the desert, you know, we human beings, we tend to think that God feels about us the way we feel. So we always interpret what God's thinking by how we feel. After 40 years in the wilderness, how close do you think you would feel to God? You would feel very distant. You would feel forgotten. You would feel useless. You would feel no hope. And it's right then you realize that God's feelings and thoughts are not anything like ours. And it's right then that he appears and says, Ah, now I can use you, Moses. He hasn't forgotten. He's not distant. And he appears to Moses. You know what else I get? So much tremendous encouragement out of this verse is, who goes looking for who in this verse? Does Moses go looking for God? Does God only appear to Moses after he's sought God for 40 days in prayer and fasting? Oh, God, use me. And he's so passionate for God. And God says, wow, this guy's so spiritual, I have to use him. No. Moses is just shepherd. Ordinary, frail, no potential, 80 years old. That's all he is. And God goes looking for And he finds him. And this is where I want to finish today. It's the same with you and me. Same with you and me. I started this message on, if you're here today, and you feel average, and you feel unspiritual, and you feel unworthy, you are one step away from being mightily used by God. The only only thing you got to do, Matthew 5, 3, poor in spirit, it's more than just feeling average, unworthy, and unspiritual. The next step is that you acknowledge that to God and say, Lord, I want to depend on you. And so I want you to put your hands in front of you. This is something I've begun to pray. Next week, we're going to, be, we're going to get to stages three and four, and we'll look at the principle there that radically changed your life, you being used by God. But you can begin to pray this. You, you, it, becoming poor in spirit is not flipping a switch, but you can pray for help. And one of the things I've begun to do in my life is... Uh, is uh, to pray to God. I regularly pray to God. I say, God, I need you. It's just a declaration. And I know that I don't even need you the way I really need you, but I'm just declaring it in faith that I want to grow in my dependence on you. And a person who's poor in spirit, it's just, it's kind of a prayer just that you live. God, I need you to be a better husband. God, I need you. If you're not going to come with me in this decision, I'm not going. I need you at work. I need you in my life to be a dad properly. I need you in this. I need you in that. That's what being poor in spirit is. And you can be the most average, unspiritual person on the face of the planet. And if you'll just need him, he will do things in you that are incredible. So hands in front of you, I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we want to grow in this thing of poor in spirit. We want to stop being, you know, all pumped up about all the wrong things the talent and the charisma and the flashy giftings, Father. We want to get pumped about you. Father, we want to depend on you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you're going to do in our lives. Grow us in our dependency on you. Grow us in our prayer lives, not in being super spiritual, but just grow us in those little 
everyday, ordinary prayers of God, help me, God, be with me, God, fill me, God, speak to me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.